Good morning, Nexus. Good to be together. We're excited for the Maker's Market after this. All that creativity, so wonderful. So today marks the beginning of Advent. Welcome to the season of waiting, of sitting in the tension of the now and the not yet. This morning, we're looking together at an ancient, subversive, and dangerous song most likely composed and sung by a teenage girl. Her words have been used for political purposes, They've inspired countless art pieces and music. They have brought both comfort and tension. This piece has been banned, truncated, misunderstood and misapplied, and simply ignored. It has also been celebrated, and it is currently prayed daily, sometimes twice a day, around the world. It is Mary's song, known as the Magnificat. So I'm curious, how familiar are we with this piece? Was Mary's song or even Mary herself featured in your religious upbringing, if you haven't? For me, Mary was this silent, obedient, mysterious, beautiful figure we didn't talk about very much. We shied away from Mary for a few reasons. As good evangelicals, we were trying really hard not to be Catholic, and we didn't really know what to do with women in any case, never mind a pregnant woman, or a woman that other segments of the church maybe worshipped, venerated, we didn't really know what the difference was. In any case, I always felt a slight unease in the church folks around me whenever Mary was brought up. But one evening, when our family was sitting around with some visitors, we were all sharing about who we would most want to be from history. I was probably 13, maybe 14. People named historical figures and famous celebrities. When it was my turn, my pious answer, Mary, was met with a roaring laughter. Maybe you had to be there, but anyway, I stand by my choice. Amy Grant's Breath of Heaven was really big at the time. I was just really fascinated by Mary. Silent, resigned, willing, obedient. I marveled at her surrender. She was so good. At my young age, I was already socialized to feel I had to prove my goodness, so I wondered, would I have said yes so willingly if I had been asked to bear the savior of the world? That's big questions we church folks ask ourselves. So my hope is this morning that we'll find some expansion in our image of Mary, maybe some expansion in our view of God, the world, and ourselves. This is a big song, and it mingles the personal with the political, the divine and the human, the big story with its immediate context. These words meant a lot to Mary and her cousin Elizabeth, and they have meant a lot to oppressed people throughout history and throughout the world. So we're going to consider together why that might be, and if Mary's song can also mean a lot to us in our context all this time later. So the text is found only in the Gospel of Luke, and it's the first of our four biblical hymns we're covering as we move through Advent. So Brad will be covering... Simeon's song, Zechariah's song, and the angel's song. Luke's gospel includes these four songs, or canticles, within the first two chapters at crucial moments in Jesus' birth story. The songs explain to the readers the ways in which God is moving and capture our hearts and imaginations in ways that prose just can't. There's this idea being woven throughout the book about a different kind of kingdom and a different way of doing life together. So the book of Luke focuses on foreshadowing the ministry of reversals that Jesus will bring, first to Israel and then eventually to all people. So the last are first, the weak are strong, 
the crucified is risen. Jesus' birth reveals God's promises and their fulfillment, and Luke emphasizes that Jesus is good news to all, and especially to those who have nothing. You can see how that might be subversive to systems that mean good news only to some, but we're invited to think bigger. The title, Magnificat, is from the first word of the Latin version, and it literally means enlarge. Mary begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. So her words don't cause God to be any greater or larger, but Mary's praise highlights God's greatness, making room for God in her life and in her world. Yes to you and your plan, God. When an angel suddenly appears to her and tells her she will mysteriously and miraculously become pregnant with the Savior of the world, for nothing is impossible with God, she replies, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to, you, to me as you have said. Then the angel leaves her with this shocking message, and Mary goes with haste to her cousin Elizabeth, who actually knows how confusing and difficult it is to receive angelic messengers to believe their message and what it's like to become miraculously pregnant. Elizabeth's pregnancy actually improves her social status. Mary's is more like a scandal, potentially putting her at risk of being stoned to death. So rather than judgment or condemnation, Mary needs safety, empathy, someone who can accompany her, recognizing, celebrating, and deepening the work that God is doing. And she is received with open arms and a beautiful blessing. Because both Mary and Elizabeth seem to realize something very big is happening right there inside of them and also beyond their two miraculous pregnancies. Despite her fears and the obvious and immediate challenges, Mary expresses willingness and gratitude to be playing this role in God's mysterious plan. After Elizabeth's blessing, Mary bursts into her song, which gives us a pretty practical picture of what the good news means and invites the poor to join her in rejoicing. But what do oppressed people have to rejoice about? Why have the poor identified so strongly with these texts over the years? A few historical flashpoints might help explain that for us. So during British rule in India, the singing of the Magnificat in some churches was forbidden because it was deemed subversive. To highlight this, on the very last day of British rule in 1947, Mahatma Gandhi, though not a Christian, requested that these words be read wherever the British flag was publicly lowered. In El Salvador in the 70s and 80s, Oscar Romero, who was a priest, Nobel Prize nominee, martyr, and saint, was a leading figure in the struggle for human rights. He would have prayed the Magnificat daily and every day of his life as a priest, and he called Mary a prophetic messenger of Christ for remembering the poor and hungry in her song. And he drew the connection with the poor and powerless people with whom he fought and died. In a similar time frame during the dirty war in Argentina, as part of their protests, the mother, mothers of the disappeared children posted, posted the Capitol Plaza with the words of the Magnificat. And then the military junta banned all public displays of the song, too much hope is too dangerous. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor and theologian executed by the Nazis, had this to say about the piece. The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn it is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, 
proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. There's some clues here as to why the poor might be drawn to this piece. So let's read it. Let's read the Magnificat, the longest set of words spoken or maybe sung by a woman in the New Testament. A poor, young, unmarried, pregnant woman far from home. As we read, I'm curious to see what you find, but chances are you'll recognize the first few verses, and then the familiarity may taper off a little bit. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So far, so good. We've probably heard that part, but how often do we hear the rest? He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. All my years in church hearing the Christmas story over and over again, I'm not sure I ever heard these words emphasized, and I'm not alone. I found a perspective piece in the Washington Post written by D.L. Mayfield, which expressed my experience. Growing up within the evangelical church, the first few verses are vaguely familiar, but neither of us heard the revolutionary part emphasized particularly. So curious about this, Mayfield polled Twitter and received more than 1,100 responses. 43% said their churches had never read or discussed the Magnificat at all. 21% said they had encountered it a few times. 28% said they had never heard the title Magnificat, and just 8% said they read it every year. She also noted that the most popular evangelical songs that incorporate the Magnificat stop after the first few verses. Isn't that interesting? Are you curious about that? Why has this song, which had been so meaningful for some, been forgotten or shortened, at least for a lot of evangelicals? So Mayfield speculates could be a byproduct of the Reformation, which caused Protestants to devalue Mary in reaction to Catholic theology. Maybe it's a lack of familiarity with liturgy. Maybe we emphasized other texts instead. Or perhaps the song doesn't sound like good news for those who are well-fed, rich, or in a position of power and might. For those who benefit from systems that oppress. For those who are happy within the empire. When I read this song in its entirety, that vague concept I had of Mary gets a little spicy. This Mary is not so silent, not so resigned. As Mayfield says, Mary is less scared and obedient 15-year-old and more rebel intent on reorienting unjust systems. In her song, overwhelmed by God's mercy and tenderness directly towards her, Mary connects her own life with the life of her people. The fortunes of Mary and Israel are connected. Mary knows that God cares about each life, which means that God cares about how each person is treated. 
Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God comes into a time and place with a specific history, a specific setting, in order to specifically say, you matter to me, and how you are doing life together matters to me. So we can read this hymn as a protest song, liberation song, emphasizing women, the poor, justice, and mercy. And as a worship song, Mary praises God for remembering God's promises. It's about what happens in God's kingdom. The hungry are fed, the lowly are raised up, the proud are cast down. These are radical words, powerful words, because of the dangerous hope that they voice the upside-down kingdom they call us to join. They invite us to dream of what is possible and to magnify or make room for God. Might this also be our invitation to make room for God? What might happen if we do that? What might we gain and what might, be, what might we lose? We live in an affluent society, all things considered. It Maybe that more than one of us here are feeling a little unsettled by Mary's send the rich away empty words. Yeah, these words are troubling to the status quo. So if the status quo benefits us, we'll find these words somewhat troubling. But for Mary among the poor, these are hopeful words. New Testament scholars tell us that Mary and Joseph lived in an atmosphere of upheaval and social discontent, a third world context under a military dictatorship dictatorship which thrived on exploitation and oppression. Concept of civil rights didn't exist. The top 10% controlled virtually everything. Local and faraway rulers may have been taking in as much as 50 to 60% of what the common people grew and owned with no pretext of using the taxes for social services. I guess they built roads. Uh, Mary and Joseph taxes went right into the pockets and coffers of the rulers. Herod was brutal with power to do away with anyone he wanted to. Caesar was so tax-hungry if someone couldn't pay their taxes, they'd be forced to return home and farm the land they had left for a better future. Some scholars think that that's what happened to Joseph. He'd been farming in Bethlehem but had to leave due to debt, going about 100 miles from home to find work. So the people were powerless and they desperately needed a reversal of the system that was working against them. In this context of oppression and injustice, Mary shares her hope, a vision of a time when everyone will be able to enjoy the good gifts of God. She offers a vision of good news for everyone. In my faith journey, I continue to hold on to the fact that the gospel is good news for all. Jesus is good news for everyone, not good advice, not good news for some, good news for all. Because is good news really good news if it isn't for everyone? Ben Wildflower is an American artist who had also never heard the story of Mary uh, emphasized in his evangelical church, but he heard it as part of the evening prayer when he started attending an Anglican congregation. Inspired by its beauty and its profound message, he carved an image of Mary into a piece of wood he had found outside a construction site. And he surrounded it by phrases from the Magnificat. His Mary is a little different than what comes up in abundance in a Google search, sweetly staring up into heaven. His Mary has her fist raised to the sky and her foot stepping on a snake. As his artwork gained visibility, some Christians objected to the political and non-biblical nature of his image. 
he had to explain that the phrases come directly from the Bible, mirroring a liturgy he had heard, which changes the verb tense in the biblical phrases, forming it into the imperative, into a prayer. Or is it a call to action? So rather than he has cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty, the liturgy had said, cast down the mighty from their thrones. Amen. Lift up the lowly. Amen. Fill the hungry with good things. Amen. Send the rich away empty. Amen. This shift in wording caused him to realize how these scriptural words were calling us to economic justice. So he put Mary's fist in the air. He thought, there are plenty of portrayals out there that focus on Mary's loneliness. He says, I wanted to make one that highlights her holy rage and her indictment of an economic system built on idolatrous ideas about what kind of people do or do not deserve things like food and shelter. I like that, Mary. She's a young woman singing a song about toppling rulers from their thrones. She's a radical who exists within the confines of institutionalized religion. Her words give us hope. So I made a woodcut of them. In their American context, Ben and his partner Naomi have discovered that sharing the vantage point of the poor exposes many of the myths that perpetuate a system that plunders the poor. We've seen peaceful people carted off to prison, which has made it difficult for us to believe the myth that the state only punishes the guilty or that it protects us all. We've become friends with people who are hooked on heroin, which makes it hard for us to buy the narrative that says they're morally inferior people who deserve to be punished rather than receive medical care. We have neighbors who are more hardworking and industrious than us, but still remain trapped in poverty. This makes it impossible for us to believe the lie that hard work and a can-do attitude is all one needs to achieve the American dream. We know folks becoming destitute and homeless because of the cost of their medical attention, which has made it hard to believe that access to health care is something one can deserve or not deserve based on how much money you have. Siding with the lowly and oppressed has helped us find God in a place where it often seems like God is absent. Seeing the song of Mary is a good way to end the day. And it helps us remember that in Jesus, something has been accomplished that elevates the oppressed and saves the rich from what is empty. Much food for thought in his words. I just had to read all of those. Uh, Jesus elevates the oppressed and saves the rich from what is empty. Jesus is good news for everyone. The reversals in Mary's song paint a picture of a world in balance. Making room for God in our life together will create a world where privilege is not given to a few at the expense of others. This song points us to an equitable sharing in the abundance of resources and life God desires for us all. We share our resources, we manage money in neighborly ways, we engage in social interactions in ways that elevate others, and we're willing to decenter ourselves. This is the way to more of life. Is loving God, loving ourselves, loving our neighbors, local and global, it's all wrapped up together. Loving our neighbor is the best way to love and make room for God in our world. And it sounds great, but when it comes down to it, it's not easy. We all have different struggles around this, but maybe you're like me. I can struggle with a sense of scarcity. It shows up in a few ways, but I noticed it particularly around my time. When unexpected things come into my day, I can get anxious. So I was amused 
and challenged when this week, as I was finalizing this sermon about making room for God, I noticed God inviting me to make some room in my agenda and my plan. The doorbell rang just as I was settling down into an evening of sermon writing. I was torn. I wanted to invite my friend in for tea, and another part of me felt really desperate, wanting to focus on my work, which was behind schedule. I noticed an invitation for myself to make some room and trust in the abundance, so I did. We had a lovely visit. It felt small and important. And part of me is ashamed that such a small thing was difficult and is worth mentioning at all, but it is. For my little heart, overwhelmed and stressed, inundated with the harsh realities of the real world after returning from vacation, I know, making room for that visit was a challenge. I wish it wasn't, but it was. And I think there's something important here. Sometimes we're waiting for God to ask us to do something real big, like becoming the mother of the Savior of the world, or being a Savior ourselves. And sometimes God is just asking us to have a cup of tea. That small thing was big, because it was hard. To do it, I had to kind of choose to jump out of my scarcity mindset over this kind of fence into an ocean of abundance. It felt better over there, but it's tough. My grip on my time can get very tight. God was inviting me to loosen my grip, my limited view, and expand. So if you resonate with this at all, can we be tender with our hearts and just acknowledge how reasonable it is for us as humans to have that sense of scarcity? Because the reality is when good things are handed out, not everybody gets them. And when the good things are only for some, it makes us kind of scrappy. It leads to scrambling to the top of the heap using whatever tools we can find, and yet scarcity thinking causes us all to lose. Our grip tightens, our arms close when we were made for embracing one another. We tighten around our time, our resources, we compete with one another to get what we can get and keep it at all costs. We're afraid of losing out, being left behind, of diminishing in some ways, so we use the same tools in the same ways that cause and perpetuate the problem that create inequalities and unjust systems. We're afraid to give space for the very thing that could save us. Fear of scarcity can actually hide behind a big sense of meh. Say when it comes to unlearning patriarchy, pursuing solutions to the housing crisis or lack of clean water for indigenous communities, we may start to think truth and reconciliation or causes like Black Lives Matters work for other folks. Fear of scarcity makes white women separate from our sisters of color as we fight for our equal rights. A scarcity lens shrinks our world and causes us to see the earth and other people as a resource to use and exploit instead of a gift to receive with gratitude and a spirit of reciprocity. The way Robin Wall Kimmerer describes. Indigenous wisdom could really save the world right now in terms of climate change and shifting our perspective toward the land and one another. The simple and profound idea of receiving the earth and one another as a gift could change everything because it's open and larger than our current worldview. Making room for God will affect our heart, our insides, and making room for God will affect life on the outside, our life together, because 
What we experience out here has a huge impact on what happens inside us, and what goes on inside us impacts how we act and the world that we create together. God cares about both the individual heart and our lives together, the personal and the political. So that means that the good news, the gospel, is for all of us and all of life. It is good news for our individual souls, and it meets our human propensity to mess things up with grace and real help. And it meets our systemic injustice with hope and more than a little fire. But surrender to God usually results in outcomes that look different than we might first imagine or hope for. As rebellious as she sounds, Mary was not a political rebel. Neither Mary nor Joseph sought to overthrow or take down the corrupt government, though there were plenty of movements during their time that tried to. But they didn't join those movements, and they didn't try to lead one. Jesus frustrated the hopes of those who thought he would take on Rome with a sword. Jesus told Peter to put his sword away and said, My kingdom is not of this world. The gospel might feel like bad news for people who want to exclude others or get power over others because this upside-down kingdom is just something else, something beyond political maneuvering. Yes, Mary's song has political implications, but it's not a call to go further left or right necessarily. It points to something outside of politics as we know it. It's a vision of creativity and vibrant life-giving energy of welcome and reciprocity. It points us beyond, makes us think bigger, and that is the point. Making room for God will enlarge us and our world. Mary gives voice to powerful wisdom when she says, He that is mighty has magnified me. Former Archbishop Rowan Williams challenges us to loosen our silly idea that God and humanity are in competition, as if the more God there there were, the less humanity there could be. But when Mary gives room to God, God gives room to her. Her humanity blossoms into its fullest glory. Learn to give God room and you realize that what has to be cleared away to make room for him isn't your real humanity, but all that has stopped you from being human, all that makes you less than you could be. On the far side of the terrible, forbidding, draining process of letting go of your expectations, your safety and your possessions lies more, not less of life. Maybe there was a part of Mary that was afraid like we might be of what making room for God might mean, but somehow Mary cooperates with God to do something subversive and countercultural. And in this way, the violent power of top-down patriarchy is subverted, not by counterviolence, but by the creative power of pregnancy. That's how God's true power enters and changes the world. And Mary's boy Jesus will consistently model her self-surrender and receptivity to God, and he will consistently prefer the insightful kindness of motherhood to the violent blindness of statehood. That's what it means to be alive in the adventure of Jesus. We present ourselves to God, our bodies, our stories, our futures, our possibilities, even our limitations. Here I am, we say with Mary the Lord's servant. Let it be with me according to your will. The Jesus path includes surrender and willingness to make room for God. 
It's at the heart of Jesus' humanity and his divinity, and he learned it from his mom. As we begin the Advent season of waiting, let's remember waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. That's from Romans 8 in the message paraphrase. paraphrase. I encourage you to go read the whole chapter. It is incredibly connected and amazing. I'm going to leave you with some reflection questions while Dave and the band play underneath for a little bit. And then Dawn will read some more words from artist Ben Wildflower as she lights the first Advent candle of hope this morning.